Welcome to Voices from the Bench, a dental laboratory podcast. Send us an email at info at voicesfromthebench.com or look for us on Facebook at Voices from the Bench. Greetings and welcome to episode 127 of Voices from the Bench. My name is Elvis. My name is Barbara. I cannot believe that we've done this 127 times. For some reason, it just hit me. Wow. (laughs) Without missing a week. We have not missed a week in 127 weeks. I've never done anything in my life. (laughs) 127 <laughs> times in a row. I mean, it's pretty yeah. unbelievable. Yes, kudos to us, I must say. Well done, partner. Absolutely. It does say something. So, hurricanes, they missed you. Last week we were talking, there were two barreling right down on Florida, and you predicted they would turn. And unfortunately, Louisiana and Texas got hit. And yeah. our hearts go out to anybody in that area, especially the labs. But yeah. somehow Florida avoided it. So good. Kudos. Good. Yeah. <laughs> I always change 50 times and it's worst case scenario, but it did strengthen pretty quick. They got hammered. I would not have wanted to be in that area, but yeah, yeah. I just thank God every year, every hurricane year, it just goes by and we make it miss. So hopefully knock on wood, it'll keep continue. Well, here in Indiana, you know, we record on Friday that hurricane's supposed to hit us this afternoon. Yeah. You're going to get some nasty weather. No, actually just light rain. Maybe. Hmm. Okay. That's what I get for living so far away from the beach. It's the con. The pro is I don't get the hurricanes. So So big news came out just the other day. Midwinter, the big meeting in Chicago for the dentist, has been canceled and it's going to be held virtually. Yeah. For those who don't know, Midwinter is the other not as important event that happens during LMT Lab Day Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. So while we don't have any official word from LMT Lab Day, I'm thinking with Midwinter not going on, I think it it's it's not going to happen. I'm 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 predicting. It's sad and it upsets me, but I think it's going to happen. I think they're just going to move it. I think that's what they're going to do to a lot of our meetings um, next year. I'm hoping that they're just going to move them to May or June, July, but that we're not going to cancel it. We're just going to move it forward. So that's what I'm thinking. And that's what I'm hoping. So I hope you're right, Barb. I'm excited to go to Chicago without a winter coat. I know that would be fantastic. <laughs> so let's keep our fingers crossed. Could you imagine going to midwinter or LMT Lab Day Chicago? And then when you go out to eat, you sit outside. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty exciting. We wouldn't be able to call it midwinter anymore. It would be a uh, spring, midsummer. That would be fun. <laughs> I get it. That sounds fantastic. I, you know, I'm not opposed to this idea. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's think positive then. I bet some news will be coming out soon. Absolutely. And of course, timing is everything. Just two hours after Barb and I finished recording, LMT announced that, in fact, Lab Day Chicago has been moved to May 6th to the 8th in 2021. And now back to the podcast. So even though the full cast crown market is down, there's still a ton that's made every day. Barb and I both agree, given the situation, that a gold crown is still one of the best restorations in dentistry. Luckily, there are partners in our industry that will allow a lab to get these done within their digital workflow with beautiful results and still allow a lab to turn a profit. This week, we talked to Scott Mappin from Strategy Milling. Scott comes with a rich background in laboratory work and a long history with milling centers. And he saw the need for a dedicated center for milled full cast crowns. And Scott comes on to talk about getting into gold milling, this fascinating process that takes the casting troubles out of our lab, which I'm super excited about, Mm -hmm. and why we all think gold is still going to be around for a long time. So join us as we talk to Scott Mappin from Strategy Milling. Whitmix brings you one of the most exciting things on the market today, the patient. Yes, it's true. The one missing component in any case we do is the patient. But now you can change that. Whitmix introduces the Bellis 3D Dental Pro Face Scanning Solution. This new practical addition to dentistry provides the dentist with a fast, easy, and affordable way to capture a detailed 3D facial scan, and it allows the laboratory an intelligent way to create a smile design. 
with this app, complete a 3D facial and even whole head scan can even be captured for virtual model and articulator alignment, which is pretty cool. You can now put a face to your digital workflow with the Bellis 3D Dental Pro. Learn more about this sought after product by calling Lorena Lightheart at 970-218-9101 or emailing her at lightheart at witmix.com. And be sure to watch Lee Colt presenting a Whitmix webinar entitled Bellus 3D Dental Pro, Creating the Virtual Patient. You can find that at witmix.com forward slash webinars. We appreciate your support of the podcast, Whitmix. Voices from the Bench. The Interview. We are happy to have on the podcast today Scott Mappin from Strategy Milling. How are you today, sir? I am very well, Elvis. How about yourself? Doing very good. Of course, we're joined by, finally, Barb. (laughs) A little technical difficulty on my end. Thank you guys for waiting for me. Our pleasure. So, Scott, let's get into how you got into this business. So, we all know that Strategy Milling is this huge gold milling facility. Mm-hmm. But obviously, you didn't show up just milling gold. So how right. did it all start for you? It's funny. My father is a CDT. Oh, nice. He went into the Air Force as a 18-year-old and wanted to be a heavy equipment operator. And they said, great, we don't need that, but we do need dental technicians. He said, what is that? They said, I don't know, but we'll, the guy's coming to show <laughs> us tomorrow. And uh, he spent nine years in the Air Force, became a well-rounded dental technician. And when he got out, he eventually started his own lab. It was in our basement. This is a classic. Uh, this is a story so many of your listeners, I'm sure, oh, sure. relate to. Oh, right? God, yes. Yep. And so our jobs as kids around the house were things like, remember, the Air Force. We had to wax floors and clean baseboards and polish his shoes. And that <laughs> led to emptying the plaster traps and the garbage and cleaning benches, which as a 10-year-old or 12-year-old or 13-year-old, that was just chores that we had to do. But at 15, when I was in high school, I would come home from high school and I got taught how to polish gold crowns. Mm. And when the other crown and bridge technician who was polishing gold crowns was our neighbor that my father had trained. And when he said, I don't know if this is a good idea, what's going to happen if he polishes off a contact? And my father's response was, we're going to teach him how to solder just like we taught you. (laughs) So it was sort of a there weren't going to be any excuses that was going to get me out of it. And I actually enjoyed it and was good at it. And that just led to me starting to work in the lab all through high school. And when I got out, I went to join the air force for dental technology. Oh, really? Yeah. But the field was frozen. So I had to wait 16 months to get in. And I thought, man, if I sign this paper, And I come home and tell my dad, I'm waiting 16 months to go to the Air Force. That's not going to sell. So I didn't sign the paper, came home. I was pretty upset. They found a school in Texas called American Career School, which was run by two retired Air Force trainers, one of which who had trained my father in Texas when he was in the military. Oh, wow. wow. uh, I went to that school and uh, it was just a trade school for dental technology. And I came back and worked at his laboratory and I've been in the lab ever since. This is uh, my 40th year of doing that. And along the way, I've owned my own lab a couple of times. The longest was a 13-year stretch up in Vermont. I've left that position and went to uh, National Dentex at H&O Dental Lab. Mm-hmm. And I became a trainer there with their 125 technicians. I ended up on a beta test team for 3M's Lava COS scanner. And it was through that experience that I left the position at National Dentex and became 3M's first remote trainer. They sent me out to Seattle, where I trained for two years, about 100 dental offices from Fairbanks, Alaska to Paris to use the digital scanning. And I thought I could make an impact with dentists to help them take better impressions. That was my goal. I also thought the digital technology was so, when they, when they gave us the 3D glasses. To look at that <laughs> Remember screen, those. Right? Yes. Yes. Wow, this yes. is amazing. This changes everything. Cause when you can see, you can do something about what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. So that was a great experience for me. I spent two years doing that and I was integrated in Issaquah Dental Lab. Oh yeah. 
doing that job because they were actually the world's second largest lava milling center. Hmm. And so I had complete access to Issaquah for any technical stuff that I needed to do. If I needed to pour a model, if I needed to take pictures of something, they were very supportive to the 3M process. I eventually applied for and was given the opportunity to be the European training manager for Lava COS. Mm. And I was going to move to Europe and I was in a relationship at the time and that didn't sell. (laughs) So I passed on the job and ended up taking a one-year contract with Issaquah as a sales rep type thing first. And then it turned into a quality control position. And after the year was up, I decided that wasn't good for me and what I wanted to be doing. And I found a position back in Pennsylvania with a family friend owned laboratory that we all know. And I worked there for about five months and I decided to resign the position. It wasn't turning into what I wanted it to be. And I knew the owner wasn't feeling like it was turning into what he wanted it to be. And since we were friends, we just decided to save the friendship and the family relationship. I knew I could find something else to do. And uh, left that position, went to work at my brother's business, which was uh, APMR Refinery for Precious Metals. And it was after about five months there where he said, why isn't anybody milling gold? And then for (laughs) 20 minutes, I tried to tell him what a dumb idea that was. (laughs) Is he your older brother? (laughs) He is, yeah. My oldest brother. In that conversation literally in a half an hour when I got done telling him how much waste there was with milling. Mm-hmm. So if you've not seen a milling machine yet, you don't realize that only about 10 or 15% of any puck or disc that you put into a machine is what's sold. The rest of it's garbage. Yeah. And in this case, you'd create a lot of scrap. And he just sat there and looked at me and he said, I don't know if you've seen that facility out there, but I have a 15,000 square foot refinery. I know what to do with scrap. I don't know how to do the milling part that you know how to do. And that was the moment the light bulb went on. And I thought, this makes total sense for some a business like yours, wow. where you have the wherewithal to recover and create the puck again. And so I spent 2012 writing a business plan, looking at all the mills that were on the market, trying to distill that list down into what mills would be best. The whole process of learning how to manufacture a puck of gold, that all took place in 2012 and eventually and we got our first mill hit the floor February of 2013. Hmm. And March wow. of 2013, we received the second and third mills. And that's when we started sort of a soft launch. We had missed the Chicago meeting, mm-hmm. which was a stroke of luck, actually. And we spent 2013 pretty much on a soft launch. And we learned a lot that year that we could have killed ourselves if we'd have gotten to the Chicago meeting just because I don't think we would have been prepared Makes sense yeah. for what could have happened. So uh, March of 2013, we started selling sort of, a, like I said, a beta test or a soft launch. And then that turned into what it is today. Wow. I can't believe it was 2013 already. Wow. Because I remember when you guys first launched, um, I was part of the DRA at the time and we talked about it. Yep. And um, it was a huge conversation for us. So it's been a long time. It has. So you guys doing good now? Is there a high need for gold still? We still see a very consistent, you know, across the country, there's roughly two to two and a half million gold crowns are still placed every year annually in the United States. So if you consider the shift towards digital dentistry in our industry across the board, it made total sense to us that at the time we were the only vendor in North America that could provide that service. Mm -hmm. And there's no way, I believe, if you gathered up all of the mills right now in the United States that could actually cut metal and put them in one facility, you still couldn't cut the two and a half million gold crowns a year that are out there. If everybody shifted that work over, there's just no way the capacity isn't there yet. And I don't know that it ever would be. And puck manufacturing is, you know, there's a lot of effort that goes into that. So to have a successful business, you don't need... 70% of that two and a half million, you only need a a small amount of it to have a successful company. And we're not here to take over the world. We just wanted to put that piece out there, digitize something that hadn't, that was kind of lagging behind. Everything else had been digitized. They weren't up to where they are now, maybe with the dentures and the PMMA things that, that are sort of in the sexy spotlight right now. But crowns and bridges had been milled out of zirconia and the casting room was sort of left untouched for precious metals 
being digitized. So that seemed like a, a good opening, even though it becomes, you know, when people say, well, that's, there's nobody doing precious metal PFMs and precious metal crowns anymore. And even in the PFM market, if you consider both the noble and the high noble numbers back in 2012, and when we were doing our research, mm -hmm. there were 14 million noble PFMs and 11 wow. million uh, high noble PFM still being done in the United States. And really what it had lost was the spotlight. We hear from labs that say, you know, I don't do any PFM or any gold crowns anymore. Everything's zirconia and Bruxer and other things. But then we hear from others that, you know, I still have, you know, 10 or 12 doctors that love PFM. They just, they love it. So there's still a market for all of those things. And while it doesn't catch the spotlight anymore, you can run a business manufacturing those products. And the digitization aspect of it where like either of your labs could sort of push that product into the same workflow as so many other things, right? Mm -hmm. The beginning process all lines up and it's just a matter of vectoring that file to a different location and getting it back. The big aspect here is it, it is a better process for marginal fit with the mills that we have and the white papers that have been done to show that there are just issues with casting. It's not about anybody's talent. Casting has laws of physics that it cannot overcome some of those shortfalls. So the milling makes sense with these mills. The two studies that have been done showed that with our PFM product that we did have from 2015 to 18 and the gold crowns, when they were compared to CAD cast or traditional cast, the marginal integrity was superior hmm. on these. I think the only downside where I would say a, a hand wax restoration would be better in than a gold crown is the intimate fit in corners. Yeah. Mm. You could do it. I could have my mills work for a half an hour trying to cut a tiny little corner in a crown with a six tenths or a half tenths, a uh, half millimeter tool, but it doesn't pay to do that. So you go in with a one millimeter and, and error that out. But Aside from that one aspect, eliminating so much labor from that process and so many consumables and so much time and all of those steps to be able to take your files like the digital designers are creating for so many other products and just vector them off to a, a gold milling center sure. and yeah. get the crown back in a couple of days just makes, that's the savings. It's the savings on the labor. Everybody yep. seems to focus on the gold yep. and it's not necessarily the gold part. That's what to be looking at to make sure that the cost value proposition works, I guess. It's the, mm -hmm. it's the elimination of that labor. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. And the consistency. Yeah. We've got well over a hundred thousand restorations and our external remake rate is is at less than half a percent. Really? Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so when you started in 2013, I mean, not every lab was scanning back then. Did you right. accept models and scan them yourself? or? No, we didn't. We didn't want to be responsible for all of that. Good for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> uh, you know, there were a lot of ideas in 2013 that I had to push back on from the APMR team. You know, we should sell scanners. We should do this. And I was like, you start selling scanners, you have to be an expert in those scanners to yeah. take those calls. And there's a lot of scanners out there. You're going to educate yourself on all of those so that you can answer those calls. And so it just... We wanted to distill it down to a pretty streamlined, really efficient process, not take on the world, but let's pick and choose here and make some decisions and just start with milling. We started milling 50% noble gold crowns. That was it. Yeah. And um, I think it was in 2000, it was in 2014 at the Chicago Midwinter Meeting, which was mm -hmm. our first out into the public, so yeah. to speak that the clients and people who came by, of course, we were a pretty big curiosity that year because nobody had ever seen that before. And people, lab techs were coming up to us saying, why would you make a 50% noble? Hmm. We were kind of like, I don't know, we wanted to keep gold in the industry. We know it's a great medium. Yeah. And they said, well, we would really rather have, if you're going to go noble, make it the least expensive noble. And if you're going to want a high noble that like they said, put, Put five more percent gold in that alloy and you're a high noble alloy. Yeah. Yep. And then drop your noble to a 2% gold. And so <laughs> we restructured again. And 2014, we ended up coming out with the 2% noble crown and the 55% high noble crown. How do you, when you say restructure again, how do you get 
gold and changes in gold into a puck? What does that process look like? Who does that for you? You guys don't do that yourself, do you? I do it. 2012, I spent the year trying many, many ways to manufacture a gold puck. I found myself in a really unique position. With my brother having the refinery, I had access to plenty of gold. So that's a really big hurdle for any other type of company that doesn't already handle gold to take on because I was quite literally working with a million, million and a half dollars worth of gold at any one time trying to discover this process of how do you do that? And we have unbelievable amounts of failures in that year to get to our final process, which is what is used inside our building weekly to manufacture pucks. That's fascinating. Do you guys have a video on that? We do not. It's uh, proprietary for our... Oh, yeah, of course. Awesome. So you're the guy then. (laughs) The guy. (laughs) When you get gold, I mean, we're used to it coming in ingots. How do you get it? Is it like powder or... No, we buy bars. Bars, whole bars, and then heat them up and then shape them into a puck. I'm going to try to dumb it down so we don't get into your, <laughs> into your, you know, exclusive how right. you do it. But right. right, I mean, you must melt it, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a melt that takes place, but yeah, we turn it into a puck, and they go to the machine, and we can make them whatever thickness we need, and it's a crazy, crazy world. Yeah, fascinating. I bet you that's heavy, huh? It is. I mean, you know, people always ask the question, "What's that puck cost?" You know, how much does that weigh? <laughs> yeah. And they range from, you know, thirty to a hundred thousand dollars per puck. Oh my god. Per puck. Per puck. Wow. Holy moly. Wow. Do you ever just put it in a briefcase, chain it to your wrist and walk <laughs> around? You know <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, there are times when you have to take it places. Oh, I bet. And so we have security when we travel and wow. it's interesting. Obviously it's valuable material, Yeah, but it loses working with it every day. The way we do, it's just the medium we work in. Sure. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, we, well, I of, yeah. Right, we lose that glassy eyed mouth open sure. stare. It is kind of interesting though. We've had individuals in here and somebody said, can you show us what a million, this was years ago. You know, can you show us what a million dollars worth of gold looks like? They were some attorneys. And mm-hmm. I said, yeah. And I took them and showed them. And they were like, that's it? <laughs> I said, yeah. And they said, you could walk out of here with that, though. And I said, I could. And then I have to live on a beach in El Salvador while you guys try and find me. <laughs> yeah. It's much better if we just don't worry. My business doesn't run by me stealing gold. It, it yeah. runs by us selling the product and doing it the best that we can and keeping our clients happy. That's cool. So you're accepting scans for the most part? We accept STL files. Uh huh. And a file in by noon any business day is shipped the next business day via second day UPS. That's our default. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Clients can speed that up if they wish. They pay for their shipping. So if they want to, they want it back faster, we can, you know, whatever they ask us, we can try to accommodate. Where are you guys at? California? Pittsburgh, PA. Oh, Pittsburgh. Okay. So how do you work out the bugs? So then they get the crown back and they're seeding and finishing it and polishing it, correct? Correct. So then you guys just work together on the specs and the internals, like if it's too tight or... Right. What is that relationship like? Do you have a sure. team of people that talk to labs? Two of us here that do. Mm-hmm. Quite frankly, we had back, if we go back to 2013, when we first started, we had some beta test labs and mm-hmm. we had a three day period of time set aside for making adjustments to those settings. Some files came in from a couple of beta test labs, and they had also previously sent models and dies. I said, yeah, I'm a technician. If you send the file and I cut it and it's way off, all I really need is to be able to put the crown on the die, determine what the setting is that should be changed, Mm. have you change it, and then send me a new file and I'll mill it again and we'll, we'll dial that in. And the first set that came were, I mean, I put them on the die and I went, I don't, I wouldn't change anything. It was dead on. Wow. Those settings are still the settings we use today. When a new client signs oh, wow. up, we send them in. When you go to the website to sign up, you have to fill out a contact page for mm-hmm. data. And in that, we ask what design system you're using. And when we see 
any of the major ones that are out there. When we reply to that email, there are some attachments that show the customer how to set up their design parameters so that it'll work with what we're doing for tooling and and the alloy. So it's a very minimal part of our world has to do with those kinds of questions. Quite literally, if I get three calls a year, four calls a year, Mm -hmm. that would be about how much time I have to spend. And it's usually cement gap. Wow. Yeah, Yeah, that makes sense. Right. It's usually cement gap. And then we have the discussion around if the designer can get exposed. I don't know if, you know, in every lab, not, not all designers sit at the metal finishing bench. So if you can get some communication to happen among your team and teach the designer things like a very parallel walled, sharp cornered the walls to the occlusal surface or the occlusal table type of prep architecture is there versus something like an Emacs prep, which is very smooth and rounded. And how's the height of the prep? Those are the things your designer should know and have communication with the metal finisher to understand how does our product consistency match up with those different prep styles. And I literally, the designer on an Emacs style prep may click down the cement gap one or two hundredths and click it up one or two hundredths on a sharp wall prep. Other than that, your contacts and your occlusion and your margins the consistency that these mills deliver and the level of wear of tools. I just did a video recently that's out on Facebook and LinkedIn Mm -hmm. talks about how our onboard software of those mills manages the tools. And so there's five different aspects of the tool that are measured every time a tool is put away and it's measured by a laser. Mm. And if any of those five aspects reaches more than 50 microns of wear, it gets put away and marked as red and the computer and the system won't pick it back up again. (laughs) And that leads to a laboratory being able to dial in their contacts and their occlusion in color on the design system and get the same product back every single time. So that tool piece is very important how we have reached a less than half a percent remake rate on gold crowns. Wow. Amazing. How many burrs do you go through? (laughs) A lot. I bet. (laughs) It's one of the most expensive aspects of running the business outside of the gold and the mills themselves. But I've owned labs and I've been the customer who's had the unstable vendor. Sure providing me services. And there's nothing more frustrating than relying on someone or some entity like that and having the the results be all over the place. So it was really important to us, especially because we were the first ones to bring this to North America. We wanted to set the bar high and that meant a lot of things. And one of them meant that we want to do it at a level that if another company was going to come out and do this, they'd have a hard time doing it as well as we did. Mm-hmm. And that's where these machines are very expensive. They are 8,500 pounds. Ooh. I've been inside mine. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a big machine to cut such a small part. But that robust scale gives you that stability. I thought I made a good decision in 2013 when we bought them. I now know in 2020, we made the best decision for that because of yeah. that remake rate. Yep. I'm always proud to say that after over 100,000 restorations, that's where our remake rate sits. And I would hope that that's what our clients appreciate is that it's, I know they do. Uh, mm-hmm. We hear it. If it comes from strategy, we know it's going to work. Yeah. I sleep well at night. Yeah. Hearing that. Is your first mill still running? Oh, yeah. Nice. Yeah. They're going to be here a long time. If I can share that, there's no metal to metal wearable. Anything that moves in those mills is pneumatically driven. They slide on oil floats and it uses maglev technology to move things around at 3G speed. So there's no like gears or anything. Right, right. Interesting. Yep. I bet you they're quieter. I don't know. Okay. Because uh, it's noisy in our milling center. Yeah. But I, I don't have anything to compare it with because I've never sat around with some DNG mills or Haas mills to sure. see or anything else at this size to see what they sound like. So I've got a question. Sure. Since you get the SDL files, do you have any clients, like doctor clients that go to you directly? Or do you only service labs? 
we do not solicit for dentist clients. If we get a dentist that wants to use us, if they're not a prosthodontist, we don't solicit that business. Okay. A prosthodontist where they have their own lab. My goal is to not steal business from you. Yep. I want to provide the service. Uh, A prosthodontist who has their own laboratory, you're not getting that crown anyway. Yeah. So that's where we kind of feel the gray area allows us to more comfortably sell to that doctor, even though it's yes. not a, it's not the same scenario. Sure. I love that. Thank you. Do you guys mill underwater or are you dry mill gold? In the gold, it's an oil mist. Really? Yeah. So how do you get the oil off of it when it's done? Off of the crown? Yeah. It's cleaned in an ultrasonic cleaner with okay. a cleaning agent. Yep. Interesting. The mill has a magazine next to it. So there's two parts to the system. Mm-hmm. And the magazine has a robot in it and 220 cups. And the cups have all RFID tags on them. Mm-hmm. So the way the process works is the file goes through our calculations to create the tool path. Mm-hmm. There's a dispo center from Rotors is the brand of mill that we're using. Rotors, mm-hmm. okay. Rotors of Germany. Their software knows where all of the pucks are. We have to scan in all the pucks and we scan in all the tools. So it knows where everything is in all three machines. And when we nest a crown into a puck and send it off to that dispo center, it calculates the tool pass first, and then it goes to the dispo center, and the dispo center sends it to the mill. The mill has all the data that came in with the file, Mm -hmm. the the client's name. We use a convention with the client's account number, the tooth number, the case identifier, and the alloy choice. And with that naming convention, when that goes through the mill – it gets delivered to the appropriate puck. The mill cuts it. The robot brings in a little cup and the cup has an RFID tag on it. When the cup is being placed into the mill, the RFID tag is programmed to that specific crown. All that data is transferred into that RFID tag. The crown is cut free from the puck and it drops into the cup. The cup is put back onto the shelf in the magazine by the robot. Mm-hmm. And it goes on to do its next task. We wow. open up the magazine, pull the cup out with the crown in it, scan that RFID tag, and it prints a label for us. We wow. put the label and the cup and the crown go together to the cleaning station, and the restoration is cleaned, put back in that cup, and then it goes to the inspection station where we look for you know hit margins, a gouge, mm-hmm. anything that would, you know, if, if there's some little tiny scratch, I may polish that off. One of our standards is if, if the change in fixing the, the defect changes the anatomical design of the crown, then it's a remake. So I'm here to fix a little scratch or something, but I'm not here to polish out a, a mark and change what you designed. If sure. that's where we end up, then it's a remake. Yeah. And after that inspection, it's weighed. And the weight is written onto the white ticket, the little sticker that was printed. So we have, we're DAMA certified. And in that process, we cover all the bases. We can track the, we can track the elemental makeup of the puck. We can track the crown. We can track everything, the date, Mm. all of it, the weight. It all is on that one little white sticker. And that white sticker is combined with an identity sticker that goes on the sleeve of the bag. The crown is put into a pillow box and, put in the bin for billing at uh, three o'clock. Awesome. That's crazy. So it cuts it out of the puck in the mill. Correct. That is great. Yeah. Why is Zirconia not doing this? That's the worst <laughs> thing. I mean, you know, cutting them out of the puck is, is tedious. Yep. I love I've had this. that task. I know. Yeah. 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 That's cool. When we looked at this, we loved what Diadem built what Mike Gerard built with DNM that lights mm-hmm. out running with the rotor system. When we saw that, that was kind of where we got down to three different milling systems and we wanted that kind of efficiency. We wanted 24 hours lights out running. We wanted robotics to handle puck management, tool management, all those things, because that makes that whole process so efficient. You know, there's nothing better than leaving at five, going home and, we do spend a little time in the evening nesting from our laptops at home, but to come back in in the morning and a number of crowns are done sitting there, then nobody was in the building. Yeah. Everything just happened overnight. I know that's an, an experience a lot of labs have with their milling systems, but that's an awesome thing to 
to have those efficiencies and no mill that could cut metal. We ended up with Makoto Rodel or Macadel Rodel from Switzerland, TMG mm -hmm. and rotors. And for various reasons, rotors ended up having sort of the total package of what we were looking for. And yeah. that was where we made that decision to go with them. How many pucks go in a, a mill? Up to 12. 12. Wow. That's a lot Jeez. of pucks. It is a lot so of pucks. So can you do like um, different metal in each puck and you can pick and choose what goes in the mill? No, that's a great question, Barb. The mills are alloy specific. Okay. So once you start cutting one alloy in there, you keep it that way so that uh, there's no, you know, contamination sounds like a, you know, you have to understand that word and I'm sure you do, but yeah, cross-contamination, if you get your 55% gold mixed with your 2% gold, you don't have either one anymore. So the burrs kind of integrate some of that into the crown and yeah, I can see how that, that would work. Yep. Yeah. So one machine is 2%. The other machine is 55%. And we currently are running a cobalt chrome in the third machine. So do you have different burrs for different alloys? I would think that the cobalt, yep. that would be super strong and your burrs probably don't last as long. Not super strong, but super hard. So in milling metal, you know, we've learned all these things from the support people that have come from our tooling company and our milling company, our mill company as well. The hardness of cobalt chrome actually makes it an easy metal to cut because it doesn't smear onto the cutting surface of the tool. Interesting. The real trick is to calibrate your feed and speed and mm -hmm. the tools that you're using. So we have very similar tools in all the machines. Feeds and speeds are different depending on what metal we're cutting. And some coatings are different on some tools than others because of the difference in the alloy. Interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. It makes a lot of sense now that I think about it. Because right. we used to do that, you know, way back in the day when we you would grind metal, you know, you would use the same bits with the gold that you would with the, say, semi-precious because of the cross-contamination. So right. it makes a lot of sense. Yep. So it's very similar to how we used to do it. If you go back down our timeline on Facebook, I put a video on that. I went around one of our mills and I showed the tool belt and the magazine, and I opened up the back of the machine and I said, you know, if you tried to take what a human being can do and mechanize that, what does it take? And I opened up the back of the machine to show all of the, there's five giant drives in there and just tons of wires and circuits and just mm. tons of technology. And I said that this is Rotor's version of what that takes. And it's pretty impressive to see what goes into one of these machines can, when my father started coming here, he, he still works here now. He's our regulatory manager and on staff CDT. We used to kind of joke and say, look at his, the smoke pouring out of his ears while he stands there <laughs> watching this machine, remembering how many crowns he's waxed in his oh, career. Oh, sure. <laughs> and yeah. how something like a three unit bridge or even, you know, whether it's cobalt chrome or when we were milling palladium, to see a, a roundhouse get cut out in the amount of time that it does. And then it just drops on a model and it fits. And you kind of just sit there and just go, wow. Yeah. I just yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're going to have That's to beat great. me over. That's oh. amazing. <laughs> that is we awesome. never could do that here in the lab. We never could do roundhouses with having, having to cut them or, you know, just solder them and cut them and, two, three, four times. We just hated it. I worked for a prosthodontist before I went to Vermont and, and moved out of Pittsburgh. And we would, you know, this was back in the 80s, 90s, and we would cast a three-unit bridge and give it to him. We were five dental technicians below three dentists in their office. Mm. Fun. He would take that framework and try it in and use Fit Checker. Yeah. And he would send it back down and he'd go cut it. If you looked at it on the model, you'd give it a pass. Yeah. Yep put it in the mouth and they show you that and you go, okay, so that doesn't work. And we, we only did that exercise a couple of times before we discussed changing our process to, you can go ahead and wax it in one piece, cut it through the biggest cross section of the Ponic, cast it in two pieces, and then put it back together on a solid model and solder it before the try-in appointment. Mm -hmm. And using Fit Checker, it brought, me to understand i'm not the world's greatest technician but i was pretty good i'm, I'm still pretty good mm -hmm. but casting just has issues with it and the, and yeah. learning about making pucks taught me a lot about why casting is just yes it's a process that that has a product come out at the end 
but the difference between taking a puck and cutting something from it, it's, you know, depending on how deep into the minutiae you want to go, it's a big deal. The difference between what's cast and what's not. We looked at a technology called hipping years ago, hot isostatic presses Hmm. and any turbine blade on a jet engine or a turbocharger in a car or helicopter blades or triggers on all of the military weapons that are created. They're all hipped. They're cast and then they're hipped. And the hipping process eliminates all porosities and inclusions in that metal. Wow. It's not a process we could ever afford to use in this industry for us here. Hmm. But learning about it and, and seeing what they were doing with that process kind of woke us up. I was a great metal tech, but I wasn't a metallurgist. I wasn't a material scientist. I didn't have that kind of background sure. in education. Yeah. The things that you miss, the detail things that you miss, and depending on who listens to this, you know, could shrug their shoulders and tilt their head and roll their eyes at me when I talk about these differences. But how many lab owners are putting in a uh, cast framework that they know has been soldered once or twice or in a couple of places? Yeah. And, you know, you got to be thinking about that five years later. What's going to happen? Mm-hmm. Sure. Flexing, you know, right? That's what we eliminate. It's not necessarily that today I can mill something and you can cast the same thing and we can get them out the door today. But if you've had to weld yours twice and referencing back to the fit checker comments, I'll still put our milled product up against that. And the white papers on our website show that the studies that were done, that that was, you know, milling is a superior manufacturing method to cast products. And it's not about any individual's talent or how good or smart you are. There's just physics involved that you can't really beat. Oh, you can't beat it. Oh, absolutely. It's like I mentioned to you earlier, Scott, before we got started. I mean, we haven't cast here. I mean, we do occasionally just to get something out the door real quick or something. But sure, God, I don't miss those days at all. (laughs) I mean, the investment issues, the oven issues, the casting issues, the human errors, and then having to keep on hold all that gold. It's just... Right. I'm happy to let other people do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. just a when headache. Consider the, you know, if you go back 10 or 15 or whatever the time in line is, how many years is it? And it's still going on today too, right? So patient presents with a positive shape of a tooth. Doctor captures a negative impression. Model can be poured. That's another positive. Mm-hmm. You know, we haven't talked and and we'll stop there and go, okay, was the impression material within its date? What temperature was it? Was it mixed properly You know, to to deliver the expansion or contraction that it could? Same with the model. Was that stone vacuum mixed? Was it the right ratio? Was distilled water used? All these different things that come into play through that process versus digitize a file and... Send it to a mill. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, I don't want my model room technicians to hear this, but i that's the next <laughs> thing to go after yeah. casting is models. <laughs> don't tell them that, Ellis. I know. I know. Right. I won't. I love them. We love them. Well, you repurpose those people and you move them into different roles. Perhaps, Absolutely. Right? That's what we that did. Things yep. change. It's not that they go away. Yeah. Absolutely. We caught some grief here because when we first opened and we showed videos of what we were doing and I caught some grief about buying robots instead of hiring technicians. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, I've done some studies, some spreadsheets on this as well. If the three mills run at hundred percent, you know, if they're running nonstop over the course of a month, they'll produce what 45 dental technicians could do. Yeah. Wow. Now you find me <laughs> the 45 dental technicians, number one, yeah, yeah. Number two, yeah. let's have them all do the exact same thing every day. Yeah. Number three, what's that going to cost us? And can I get a less than half a percent remake rate out of those 45 people? With no drama. You want no drama. <laughs> <laughs> See, I let you bring that one in. <laughs> but it's impossible. It and, is. And, you know, what are we looking for? We're looking for a manufacturing process that spits out a consistent, highly accurate process. I see it. My brother saw it. My dad sees it. Dana, who works here, sees it. It's not a unit. It's not a part. It's not just a crown. We're considered medical devices. 
Hmm. And these are human body replacement parts. Shouldn't we all be trying to do this the best we can? I understand the doctor's impression might not be the greatest, but I still want to do the best job we can with strategy milling, creating the most accurate, what you send me in a file, I'm going to deliver in a part. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the part I can control. And that's what we work so hard at staying on the, no pun intended, cutting edge of (laughs) what can we do? Oh, pun totally intended. That's great. Love it. Yeah. You know, our our tool company that we buy our tools from, we work very closely with them. When they get new coatings, we try things out and test to see, can we adjust a feed or a speed and shave 10 seconds off of something? And, or can we make the product surface quality a little bit better? It's just like the dental industry where you're always working towards fixing and making better yeah. the next thing. Yeah, love that. So you and your brother, so you guys get along pretty well still, huh? Your dad's still there, your brother, is it just the three of you? Well, my dad is still here. Uh, actually, I bought the company away from my brother four years ago. Cool. He has the refinery and yeah. focuses on that. And I have this piece and I focus on this. And it's a fun place for my father to come to work. And it's really, <laughs> I'm blessed to have that opportunity to still be able to work with my father at his he's 81 and he still comes in here and makes an impact i know my dad comes in and does die trims and you know it's just really special it is he's uh just turned 80 so i'm with you on that it's super fun i still really love it and they were both uh, military trained so we kind of come from the same and, and boy, that's a big cloth in this industry. I hear, you know, and so many people, it's, I wonder if it's that way in other businesses or other yeah. industries, you know, if there's generational ties like that. Do you guys both see yourselves being 80, still going into the lab to yeah. help out the next generation? Yep. <laughs> you do, I do. 80, you're still going in? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go in and be a big pain in my son's <laughs> maybe at 80 i hope to be viewing it from my laptop somewhere and just keeping tabs on what's there you going go. on yeah cool awesome yeah i'm curious scott barb and i talk about this a lot you know i'm in indiana and we still probably do seven to ten full cast crowns almost every day uh-huh. uh you know that's a little high maybe but on average and barb hardly sees any do you see in a country-wise where there's more full cast than others? I wouldn't say that. I th- no? Okay. So much, I think what we get pinged with more is from lab owners saying, how do I sell this? How do I price this? Yeah. And that's where I see a huge variation from locations around the country, right? Mm-hmm. The depressed states obviously can't sell their product for the profit margin that more lucrative states can. I get it, yeah. You can't compare Alabama to Washington State for what they can get for their product sure. uh, out the door. But as far, I mean, we have clients in every one of the 50 states. Oh, okay. Awesome. I always figured the Midwest was behind, so that's why we were still doing a lot of PFMs <laughs> and full cast. While people on the coast, you know, they're all the newer products with all the scanners. And I think right. it comes down to the age of the uh, doctor, of the client. Some of the older ones that we have, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but you right. know, old's always been the standard and they love it and they stick to it and they do some of the other Emacs or Zirconia, but they just have always and will always want gold restorations. And to be honest, yeah. it is the kindest, in my opinion, you know, to the opposing dentition and the margins are beautiful. You can varnish them, you know, you can do a lot of things with it. So I just think it's, I, I really think it's here to stay. It's never going to go away. It's not as much as it was, but um, you're always going to have it. With the aging population whose vertical is shrinking over time, right? There's how many materials can you place on a first or second molar that will stand up over the rest of that patient's life, perhaps, Mm -hmm. at a half a millimeter or three quarters of a millimeter thick without, and this is, I'm sure, debatable by some, but, you know, without it being an antagonist. It's just the easy restoration for a doctor to place in those situations, If you wanted to, you could still use zinc phosphate, cement, all the things that you just mentioned, Barb. You know, it's easy to place. They can burnish it. They can polish a contact. They can polish the occlusion. 
they could drill a hole through it and do a root canal if they wanted to without even yeah. taking it off. It's so versatile. Mm -hmm. And I hope that the, the older docs are teaching this to the younger ones coming through. And, you know, some of the not so young, but not old, there's a gentleman in Florida who's a big fan of placing gold restorations. And, you know, I've seen his posts. It's a dentist. And he said, it's the cheapest restoration we place yeah. because it'll last forever. Mm -hmm. Whereas some of these other restorations may fail over time. It might sound like it's expensive on the front end, but if it's done well, it's going to be there for a long, long time. Agree. And like I said before, you know, it's kinder to the opposing. So, yeah. you know, you're, you have better patient satisfaction long-term and you have that, you know, I, I don't know. I'm just a, a, a real believer in it. But my dad taught me that a long time ago. Gold is the best standard. So, yeah. Well, I still recommend it a lot. Oh, yeah. I don't know if a lot of labs even consider it when an office sends in a case and call for recommendations. What do you recommend? I always recommend full cast. Well, the other challenge, I think, in this country, as opposed to other places around the world, is the patient telling the doctor what they want. And we have a culture here. A few times a year, I go on Crest's Facebook page and slam them. <laughs> Putting out their commercial where two women are having lunch and they think that their teeth should be the color of the white napkin that was yeah. on the table. I always tell them, if you're really out for dental health, I don't know that that's your best foot forward on. You're reaching a mass market and you're telling them that their teeth should be white, white, Toyota white. Mm -hmm. You know, a friend of mine said she was going to bleach her teeth. I said, let me just ask you a question to bring this to how I see that. Mm -hmm. If you could, would you get the whites of your eyes tattooed Toyota white? Yeah. Because that's what we're talking about, how it stands out against your complexion. If you made the whites of your eyes pure white, you'd look scary. <laughs> and that's what I see when I see people on news or and the bleached white yeah the bleached white look i think nine times out of ten it just looks unnatural and it pops out to me yep i'm not immune to the cultural shift of white teeth either but the old rule of never make somebody's crowns whiter than the whites of their eyes still is in my head and i've had friends that have gone and had their whole mouth redone and it's stark white and i just mm -hmm. it makes me cringe oh sure so get gold up front everybody it's there, still you still there you go there you go it used to be. <laughs> I really believe that in our industry, in the next, I don't know, however many years, when all these zirconia crowns start having issues and people start having to cut them off, <laughs> tell it, yeah, and they realize how bad this is. I think there's going to be a shift back to full cast posterior teeth. I really do. I think that's happening in certain doctors' offices already. I've seen it a few times. Yeah. We've done a zirconia posterior tooth. It broke within a year, and I've had a few doctors say, you know what, this patient's not nearly as vain, I will say that word, not nearly as vain as they need feed. They're, they're happy with the full cast. Let's do it. We don't have to do it again. Perfect. Well, just like we were talking about the uh, solder connections, you know, you know darn well technicians are heating that zirconia up and causing little micro fractures and or yep. using a disc on the interproximal, high-speed oh, inclusion. Yeah. Firing it too fast. Sooner or later. Yep. Good old tested and true. Yep. Yeah. Scott, I wanted to ask you real quick about your scrapping. I imagine you mentioned earlier that you have a lot of waste, but you must turn it back around into gold. How much of that scrap do you capture? All of it, I imagine? Almost all of it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Above 99%. Awesome. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. And it's interesting that, I mean, that is a question that comes up quite a bit. And all I will say is if you were in my shoes and you had to account for the gold, you will find a way to <laughs> plug the hole, fill yep. the crack. Oh, yeah. You know, it's, it doesn't take very long to see where it goes and then stop it from going there. Do you make employees shake out their shoes and their clothes as they leave over like a bucket? Or <laughs> we No, there's not an opportunity really to get yourself coated like that, but... We do inventory frequently and we know where our numbers are. There's very little. The gold that doesn't make it back into a puck mm -hmm. is captured at a high rate. And once it's, you know, I'm not going to lie to you. I mean, there are gold flakes that end up on the floor yeah. on carpets that we catch, use carpets to catch things. Yeah. And you refine that. <laughs> yes. I mean, once it's on the floor, that becomes 
true scrap for us. That does not go back into any kind of a puck or anything. That's gathered up and shipped off to be refined. And, oh, you don't have the three-second rule like food? No. <laughs> God, no. <laughs> yeah, no, that doesn't work. Okay. So, <laughs> you can't stay in business and be a huge producer of true scrap sure. here. It has to be managed from the beginning, from the day it shows up as a bar to the moment it leaves as a crown. You have to set up traps all over the place to catch and capture the gold flakes that are coming off of things. All of the 2% crowns are cleaned in the same cleaning solution in the same tank. That's it. It's just 2%. Yeah. The 55 is in a different one. Anytime we can keep it separate, we can gather it and continue to use it. But once it hits the floor or is stuck to a paper towel or a rubber glove, that all gets incinerated and refined and we there's not a whole lot that leaves the building outside of a crown. Yeah, that's amazing. That's quite a process you guys have going over there. I'm I'm quite impressed. Thank you. Yeah, amazing. Seems daunting, honestly. It seems like there's a <laughs> lot going on that I don't quite understand, but I find it fascinating. Yep, me too. If you're ever in Pennsylvania, swing by. We'll give you a tour of the place. I would love to, actually. Same here. Yeah, you Yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. And to believe it or not, we made it through a whole interview not talking about COVID. So I want to congratulate hey. both of you. That's a beautiful thing. It is. It is. Because we all know what's happening. We all know right. it sucks for business. But right. you know what? Yeah. Let's talk awesome. about other things. Yeah. Exactly. Let's thank both of you for not absolutely. bringing up COVID. You're welcome. <laughs> yes. You're welcome. And thank you for also not doing it. <laughs> Well, awesome. Yeah. Scott, that was great. Strategygoldmilling.com. That's the website. I highly recommend any lab out there that wants to check out getting a milled gold crown. You'll you'll thank yourself not casting these things anymore. And they are beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, appreciate it, Scott. Thank you. My pleasure. Take care, Barb. You too, Scott. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks. Dental Services Group is proud to support the National Board of Certification in Dental Technology and proudly promote certification for dental technicians throughout their national network of laboratories. The CDT designation sets certified dental technicians apart from others in the field demonstrating a mastery of knowledge and applied skills in the art of dentistry. Certification also raises the standards of dental health through education in all aspects of dental technology. At Dental Services Group, they believe dentistry plays a significant role in the healthcare ecosystem and is committed to providing solutions to benefit the overall health and well-being of the patient. Visit NBCCERT to learn more about becoming a CDT and dentalservices.net to learn more about how DSG supports the dental community. And they support our podcast. So thank you, DSG. Well, a big, huge thanks to Scott for coming on our podcast to talk about strategy milling. Elvis and I love what he's doing for our industry and challenge anyone who is still casting, God bless you, to give milled full cast crowns a try. You'll love the fit, the consistency, and the quality. No more storing gold inventory, no more casting errors. So if you're interested, check out the links on this episode's show notes. I actually asked him, because I was curious, how many anterior gold crowns is that he Mm-hmm. He tells me he probably does one a week. Wow. Which is crazy. And he actually shared some pictures of me of like some really like full grills. I mean, he's done like four or six anteriors of all gold teeth. <laughs> and what's funny is even today at our lab, I got in a gold number seven. I wow. think it's hilarious. And I know he can do them, so I guess I'm going to shoot it over his way. <laughs> Let me know how it looks. I'm sure it's going to be beautiful. Does it have a diamond in the middle of it or an initial or anything crazy or just straight up gold? Just straight up gold. I might call, see if I can convince the person to get that bling a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever done a diamond in a tooth? Yes. Yeah. How did you get that diamond in the tooth? Do you remember? No. 
I didn't do it. Our laboratory did it, but there's some sort of way of having some retention. Mostly it's super glue, to be honest with you. I know that sounds crazy. And then you like yeah. gold over it and then varnish it down and then polish it. So it seals it in. I love the interesting stuff that comes in through our lab. <laughs> it just makes it fun. Yep. So if you guys will remember a few weeks ago, we talked to the gentleman that started Digital Dental Craftsman. And they talked about a 100% virtual conference that they are getting ready to launch. If you follow their Facebook page, you would have seen some of the video of what it's going to look like. And it's looking even better than I can imagine. Cool. Well, later this week on September 2nd, you'll finally be able to register for their October 4th launch. So make sure you check out digitaldentalcraftsman.com and follow their Facebook page for updates on this amazing new platform that's going to connect our industry. It's pretty cool. Look for us. Barb and I will be walking around. Yes. Well, all right, everybody. That's all we got, and we appreciate it, and we'll talk to you next week. Have a good week. Have a good one. See you. Bye. So if you follow their foot, if you follow... (laughs) 